Um, I was at a retirement party for a friend of mine, and it was also his 70th birthday. And um, his name's Rich. I don't think Rich will listen to this recording. Um, and Rich, is, there's like an evident happiness. He's kind of always had like this kind of deep ingrained grin with all the marks that come with those. Um, just a really generous spirit. But his life, <clears throat> his story, has had a pretty significant amount of failure in it. Not moral failure, um, but just life setbacks. Um, and his life really, his life has not ended. He's 73 now. He's still doing well. But his career, his vocational career, didn't, um, didn't end with what you might call success. He started his vocational life as a pastor. He planted a church in um, Illinois. But pretty quickly, he started to feel kind of the difficulty of just some of the challenges he didn't feel equipped to. And about six or seven years later, he closed the church. Um, And midway through his life, he felt like he had to sort of shift careers and go back to school and have a different degree and just a number of setbacks. And you could say there was a level of dormancy in his life for long seasons of, of time. But here he was at 70, and he had dozens of men and women around him who had over the years been shaped and impacted, including me, by his presence in life. He was a spiritual help. He was a guide. He was a leader. He was a counselor. But in his 30s, 40s, and 50s, you would say he had kind of a hidden life, a kind of dormancy. Um, and I was sitting with him, and I was asking, what, is, what, was, what was part of helping you getting and persevering and sort of enduring some of those seasons? And uh, he answered this, and I wrote it down. He said, I think the Lord helped me learn how to welcome the parts of me that were mediocre. In fact, he went on to say, I think it's more important than we realize for spiritual maturity to be okay with our mediocre selves and trust in God's love. Um, And that's really meant a lot to me, especially in seasons of failure, uh, embarrassment, humiliation. Um, And so here you have this conflict or this contrast in some ways. Most of us have internalized the idea that that mediocre is akin to a lack of a fully developed self. You just sort of stopped somewhere along the way and you should have kept going. Or it's something about you isn't unique or special. And so we, we hide our mediocre selves with filters, or at least we try, Right? Or we get mad at our husbands for taking pictures of us in our mediocre kitchens. But our, my friend, Rich, he had grasped that being a fully developed self is actually being able to welcome your mediocre self. He was a child of God, and he can just be himself and be loved. And he learned how to do that. And so, listen, it is hard to exist in a performative world as a mediocre self. It is. 
And so we either grind our emotional and spiritual lives into a pulp trying to become more, or we walk through this world full of shame and guilt, assuming something's wrong with us. And, and part of growing out of that performative self is grasping, is really kind of maybe pulling back the covers, becoming apocalyptic to what the performative life really is, what is, what is behind that, and really how it has been shaping and forming us into its, into its image. Jesus has taught us to live a life that's secret with the Father in the secret place. That was the first talk. And how to find uh, and pattern your life after the mustard seed, even though there, it feels hidden, there's a potency to that hiddenness. And here, um, I, I want to look at John 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to John 12. And, and Jesus has a, a vital image for us to grasp as well. So if you go to John 12, verse 23, and it's another, uh, it's another seed image. It's, and Jesus answered them in verse 23. Jesus answered them. He says that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Death and burial. There's no book that talks about death and burial as key ingredients to the good life. But here, Jesus is talking that way. Um, In John 12, it is this critical moment in uh, the ministry of Jesus. It's this turning point. Think about uh, the story of Steve Jobs and Apple. He was fired. Do you know this? He was fired in the mid-1980s from Apple. And then he was hired in 2000, and then, right, it just took off. Apple is what it is today. Or Winston Churchill, he was fairly indifferent to Nazi Germany until he visited Germany in the 1930s and saw the evil of Nazism himself, and he was determined, right? History changed after that. There was this turning point, a kind of trajectory in the narrative, and in John 12, you have the height of the Jesus movement because now, previous to this little seed imagery that Jesus is giving, the Greeks are looking for Jesus. The nations are coming. Right? This is a fulfillment of, of everything that the Old Testament is talking about. Jesus' ministry now and his movement is advancing. It's going global. Is, is this how the kingdom would advance? With larger crowds and a national, international platform. Surprisingly, or maybe not surprising by now, Jesus resists this path. He resists this move, this move of this direct line of obscurity to glory. It didn't go to a direct line, right? It was an indirect move to the cross. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus wasn't trying to get away from having to greet the Greeks. He was trying to resist the pull of a world that says you should resist the cross. 
And here Jesus is talking about his own path when he's talking about the seed being buried into the ground. The way of salvation, you know this, the way of salvation and blessing of the whole world isn't going to come through him knowing the whole world or being loved by the whole world, but being humiliated and rejected. Salvation and glorification for Jesus comes through him dying to fame and power and then to life itself, right? But he's not just talking about himself. He goes and says to us, to you, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. I walked a path of a death to self in the way that Paul talks about in Galatians 3 or uh, Galatians 2 or Colossians 3. This death to self, this radical contrast to the performative life, a life that anxiously seeks to be seen as confident. Right? You walk into a room, you, you don't want to seem like you're lacking all the right things. You want to be confident and seen as you're together, you're, you're balanced, you're on your way to success if you're not already successful, you're on your way to love if you're not already loved. A path that seeks a sort of sense of self-worth and identity through the curation of your public image. Right, Babylon promises that if you follow this path, you will have maximum control and maximum freedom, but it's fragile, right? And so Jesus says, that's got to die. And if you don't, you will be fragile and you will wither along with Babylon. Right? So that's, that's where he's getting at. Now, in, <clears throat> in the 17th century, when the plague hit London, uh, there was an English minister named Samuel Shaw. And Samuel Shaw's whole family was hit with the plague. He and his wife both got hit. They recovered. A few other kids got hit. They recovered and they lost two. But he also had to bury, as a public minister, thousands of people um, in London. And he wrote as a first-person witness to the plague and its impact, both physically and spiritually, he said, seasons like this are an opportunity to meditate on what he called the created fullness and the uncreated fullness. The created fullness are all the things that we build through our wealth, health, and vitality, the things that we can do for ourselves, the created goodness. The uncreated goodness was the goodness of God, the full, uh, fullness, sorry, I keep saying goodness, uncreated fullness and created fullness. He said, times of loss, weakness, grief, we experience the frailty of the created fullness, fullness that comes from what we try to find in our money, our, our health, our success, and our public status. Poverty empties you of your money. Sickness empties you of your health. Old age empties you of your potential. Suffering empties your sense of well-being. But, he says, once you've been disenchanted by the created fullness... It's then that we can be carried out with delight to feed and dwell and live upon the uncreated fullness, the fullness of God. Then is a soul raised to its just altitude, to the very height of its being, 
when it can spend all of its powers upon the supreme and self-sufficient good, spreading and stretching itself upon God with full contentment and wrapping in itself, wrapping up itself entirely in him. Listen to this line. This is the soul's way of living above the losses. This is the soul's way of living above the losses. Jesus is, is showing us two ways of living. One can go along with the symptoms and the systems and the promises of that, the Babylonian world. Another one lives a hidden, buried, death-to-self, mustard-seed faith who lives in the secret place with the Father. There's two kinds of lives, right? Only one of those lives can live above the losses. Only one of them can be lifted and experience uncreated, eternally sustained fullness. And the difference between the two, it's not subtle, the difference between the two is death. Right? Death to self. And it feels like death. To walk away and to resist the performative life is costly. It does feel like death. And so, you know, Jesus says, to, I mean, almost every time someone wants to follow him, he always reminds them of the costs. Have you counted them? To follow Jesus in this death doesn't just mean that you may f- miss out on the adoration of the Instagram comments that we talked about. But it may mean it likely will mean that you will be ignored, overlooked, or dismissed. There's a, there's a cultural narrative um, out there that says if you stop trying to prove yourself into this world, you'll show the world that they can't ignore you. The problem is if you, don't, if you follow that advice, you'll probably just be ignored. It's probably true. Because if, if you're honest, the, the world ignores those who don't participate in the systems of performance. Going from the performative life to the hidden one with Jesus can be, is likely, the lonely choice. It's a confusing choice. And oftentimes can feel very disoriented. Even, even more than that. <laughs> you're like, even more than that. Okay. While you may be reaching for hidden ways of of living with Jesus in the secret place, the world is not. The world won't. And that can be costly. And if you're a a parent, I, I think our children need to know this. That resisting following the performance of the world is not like a a secret path to success. Right? Jesus isn't giving us a, a sort of subversive path to worldly success. He's giving us a cross. And it can kind of feel like a cross. It's not just like a, a birthday cake shaped in a cross. It's really a cross. It's a path. And the world incentivizes the performative, not the buried. 
But as, as we walk with Jesus, though, and here's what Samuel Shaw is trying to get us to grasp, that those deathly losses, they don't just happen less. It's just the impact of those losses become more appropriately weighted. Right? The, the, sufficient, the sufficiency of created goodness, our riches, our wealth, our potential, they will run out in these times, and that can be painful. But Christ's sufficiency never runs out. It always goes on. We may, not, we may be numb to it sometimes and asleep to it, but it's always there. It's always sufficient. And the losses and the death that we experience become more and more insignificant in comparison to our experiences with Jesus, which is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, can talk this way. I mean, how many talk about losses in life, right, Paul? But this person who experienced these kinds of losses could talk like this. So we don't lose heart, he says in 2 Corinthians 4. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, can you believe him? Light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal what? You know? Weight of glory. It outweighs what you're feeling and experiencing in your losses. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, just wisps. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, this is the soul's way of living above the losses. There is, I, there's no other path. <laughs> I don't want to try to fool us into thinking this is a good one or maybe this is the most moral one. This is the only one. It's the only path. But Jesus' imagery of a buried seed is still, there's still more there. There's still more to, to dig out though to understand it being a kind of life that's actually good. He shows that there's a, a kind of le- life uh, that leads to death and a kind of death that leads to life. The kind of death that leads to life is a path that we have to follow not only in dying, but burial. Jesus talks about being buried. Right? Jesus compares his life to what happens to a seed. A seed dies and is buried. Jesus was died and he was buried, right? Now, when a seed is buried into the ground, it's dead and it's dormant. But of course, um, it's a fruitful dormancy, right? If you don't know what a seed is for, you put it in the ground and you think that's it. That's the end of the story. It's just going to be gone now and good luck finding it. But being buried in the ground, the seed actually becomes what it was meant to be, right? It's not meant to be in its packet somewhere where you can shake it and make music, maybe. It's meant to be in the ground. If it doesn't go into the ground, it doesn't become what it's supposed to be. And Jesus, of course, identified 
himself with that seed. He stepped into that kind of death, dying to the kingdoms of this world and never trusting in its promises and being buried in the ground, dead and still. And then Jesus says, now, pattern your life after that. It must be characterized by deaths and burials. To, to the watching world, a life that resists the performative ways is as good as dead. It's maybe, it seems like, well, they've just given up, obviously. They're hidden. It's the end of story. They're buried. Therefore, they're ignored. But listen, you're buried, but you're buried in Jesus. It's a dormancy, but it's a fruitful dormancy. You have died, but you have died in Christ. You're buried, but you're buried. That's how the New Testament talks about you. If you are a Christian, right? It's not just a death. It's a fruitful dormancy. While our our culture teaches us to find our identity in self-expression and displayed virtue, Christ leads us to be buried with him, to be quietly hidden with him. And when you do, what you find is, is a life that has become what it's meant to become. Like a seed for soil, you were meant for Jesus. You were meant to be in Christ, to be in him. Apart from Christ, you are alone, fruitless, unsatisfied, living in ways that you were not made for your existence. Listen, do you want the same joy that Jesus had? It's not a rhetorical question. Do you want the same joy that Jesus had? Do you want to experience the same love from the Father that Jesus had? Do you want to be able to walk into a room in a non-anxious way like Jesus did? Somehow, we have gotten the idea that to have the same joy and love and non-anxious presence of Christ, we can do that without adapting the lifestyle of Christ. But Christ says, if you want what I have, you must follow me. To follow in the path of death and burial. You, you were meant to live not in the grasping of the gaze of others, but to within. You're supposed to live within the loving gaze of God and his acknowledgement of you. Rather than trying to display the life that lives up to, the, to what the world considers as balanced. I've never been so exhausted trying to live a balanced life, right? Suddenly, you're like, I've got all my ducks in a row, and that new buck comes out. I was like, well, you're not doing this enough for a balanced life or an optimized life or an admirable life. While we crave those Instagram comments of, I want your life, what we really need is the Father saying to us, you're my beloved child. Well done good and faithful servant. I love you. I, I do think one of the uh, Ronald Rollheiser um, defined prayer like this is being close enough to God to hear him say, I love you. I, I can't do better than that. All right, what is that? You're not doing anything. <laughs> You're just trying to be vulnerable, needy, and longy enough to hear the Father say, I love you.
the affirmation of the world is, is a moving target. And it's exhausting, and we're perpetually anxious trying to cultivate our insecurities. But what we have in Christ is unfading, imperishable, eternal, guarded in heaven for you. And in that burial is the soil and setting for fruitfulness. Listen, I know it may sound like it. I'm not telling you to hide away. I'm just telling you to find your, yourself in Jesus first. Find your love in the Father. There you will be fruitful. Jesus is all about being fruitful, right? If you want to be fruitful, in John 15, do you know what Jesus says, right? Do you remember what he says? He, he doesn't say, if you want to be fruitful, optimize your life. But abide in me. Find yourself in me. It's a fruitful dormancy. All the resources that Christ had are made available to you. So pay attention to this, okay? When Christ calls you, Christ, you can tell I've said it. I've talked too much this morning already. When Christ calls you to a death and burial life rather than a performative one, the call is not to die for Jesus, but you're dying with Jesus. Do you know the difference? Jesus doesn't need your death like we need his death. Jesus is not calling you to atone for all of your failures and your previous performative life. Jesus is calling you into what Paul calls the fellowship of his sufferings. Or what you could say, he's calling you into the good life with Jesus. We're buried, but we're not alone. It's a participation with, with Jesus. So if, let me just, I'm done here in, in a few minutes, okay? Some of you are really excited. Um, can I encourage you in this? Our, our world has a narrative of self-fulfillment that it believes that if it can seek self-fulfillment and fullness, maximum freedom, maximum control, that's wholeness leading to the good life. And it also believes that a life of self-offering, dying to self, is a diminishment. It's not the good life. And it will actually call you belligerent and bigot for believing that. Our world says that the loss of self-fulfillment is as good as a terminal death, right? If you do not experience it or able to pursue it in the way that you feel is true to yourself, it's not a good life and it's not one worth living. But Christianity has always made a distinction between a terminal death and a postal death. Right? I'm almost done, so just stick with me to understand the difference between the two. You know what the word Paschal means? It's from the, the Exodus, um, the Paschal lamb, right? When, when Israel was enslaved to Egypt and God delivered them from slavery, what did he do? He put the blood of the lamb on top of the post, and every family that had the blood on the post, the angel of death passed over, right? And they were delivered through the blood of the lamb. This, this, this Paschal lamb preserved their life. It gave them new life. They were redeemed. 
And Jesus, of course, identifies as this ultimate Paschal lamb, a suffering, self-giving life. So, listen, there's a distinction that I want to make between a terminal death and a Paschal death. A terminal death is a death that ends life and ends all possibilities, right? Maybe it's your actual biological life, or maybe for you, it's you're losing a certain amount of money, a certain amount of health, a certain amount of potential, a certain amount of adoration that makes life not worth living. It's as good as a terminal death. There's no meaningful continuation. But there's a Paschal death. A Paschal death is a death that, while ending or losing one kind of life, it opens up into a deeper and richer form of life. All right? And in our world, all Paschal deaths are terminal deaths. There's no distinction. To give up on one is to lose the other. But in Christ, your apostle death, dying to self, living the, the cross-shaped, death to self, seed in the ground life, is apostle death. It's a generative death. It's a death that leads to actually infinite possibilities forever and ever. When Christ calls you to follow him, dying to the performative world and being buried with him, it's a death, but it's a generative death. So can I ask you to reflect just for a minute? When you imagine that paschal death, a death to, while ending one kind of life and losing one kind of life, it opens up a deeper, deeper, richer form of it. What is that death for you? Like if the Spirit was with you, and He is, and He were to point out in your life that this must die if you want to be walking more faithfully and fully and fruitfully with Jesus, what would that be? Or if Jesus was able to say to you right now, <clears throat> listen, this, this thing in your life, you, you can't continue to follow me in this way and try to live to it still. You can't continue to follow me in this way. There has to be some kind of death. What, what would that be for you? For me, it's going to be something different from you. What is that? These are one of the stories that I can't just tell to make you go, oh, that's it. You, you have to listen. What would Jesus be pointing out in your life and say, listen, it's worth it. Die to it. It's the good life on the other side of it. It's going to feel like death, but it'll lead to a deeper life. Whatever Christ might be calling you to leave behind, and maybe you're feeling a little discomfort, but whatever it may be that he's calling you to leave behind and die to and to be buried to in him, he's not calling you to a diminished life. It's not a diminishment. It's not even a terminal death. Jesus, <clears throat> listen, Jesus never promises to provide the baseline coverage for middle-class comfort. That's just never his, his desire in your life. There's nothing wrong with the middle class. We're all in it, right? But the promise there is not for middle class comfort. The promise there is newness, is transformation, 
joy, fruit, rest. It's the good life, right? Let me pray. Um, Father, I I ask for wherever you might be leading us, um, by the power of your Spirit, would you be really clear? Would the fuzziness that our flesh provides, would that be pushed aside right now? Would the promises that our world gives us, would would those fade to the background? And would your voice be really clear so that we know and we hear? And would you give us the power of obedience that isn't trying to build up our our morality structures, our, our virtue structures, or our sense of self, but is really just trying to depend more on you and live more, more in Christ, to find our fullness there, to find our satisfaction, and ultimately our sense of self and identity from there. For a long time, many of us have learned a different path and have been shaped by it. Would your spirit renew us revitalize us in a different path, the one that looks more like Jesus. And it's the name of Christ we pray. Amen.